Hello and welcome to Marketer Talk Series. We're in conversation with Jason Bailey, founder of Agnum, Art Market Analytic Expert and Curator. Jason's mission is to use technology and data to improve the world's art historical record and to bring attention to artists working at the intersection of art and technology. In this talk, Jason speaks about the art market trends, ways of exhibiting art online and the future of art and technology post-COVID-19. Enjoy the talk. I'm just connecting with Jason. Hey! Hey, hey, hey! How's hey! It going? Yeah, I'm all right. You? Oh, hanging in there, hanging in there. Glad to have a chance to talk today. I'm tired of... I love my wife and I love my dog, but it's been just us for a few weeks. Yeah, yeah, I know. My flat has been pretty tiny and me and my flatmates have started to sort of, you know, <laughs> having our own spaces. But yeah, <laughs> it's nice so to talk to you, Jason. Going a little stir crazy, I think all of us, right? Yeah, it's been over a month for me. I don't know how you guys have been. How long have you been in the lockdown? Yeah, we cheated a little bit a few weeks ago. We would go out here and there to the, you know, the grocery store and stuff like that. But uh, nothing really social for probably about a month now. Um, the smartest decision we made, and it was definitely my wife's decision, she decided that we that some people stock their, their cabinets full of food or like, you know, some uh, people that maybe I'd be a little bit more afraid of go and buy guns. But my wife decided we needed to get an inflatable hot tub for the uh, the backyard. And it was brilliant. I mean, we, we got it two or three weeks ago. And um, I they, saw the picture. It looked amazing. I, I contemplated doing this call from the hot tub, but I thought that the bubbles might um, might cause a disturbance. Uh, Maybe yeah. your phone wasn't happy about that. <laughs> Yeah, just try. I think just trying to. Um, I'm sort of a, a data nerd, as you know. So I, in the beginning, going back four or five weeks ago, I was already looking at the models and the projections and trying to figure out what they mean in terms of coronavirus. And actually, one of my clients um, was nice enough to sponsor me to build out uh, websites for all 50 states in the U.S. to try to track coronavirus at the the county level. Well, when you're a nerd like that, um, you know, you need something to counteract it. So I think that the hot tub was a nice balance to like overlooking at numbers and stuff like that. Yeah, you need some, some downtime. Gotta be Sounds silly. definitely like a, a good balance between the two. Yeah, yeah. Then the other thing, um, and I'll, I'll stop on Corona, was uh, we gave me a, a mohawk early on, a coronavirus mohawk. And that was a, another fun distraction, too. So got to keep it light. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, so I was um, just saying everyone who's watching this live that if they do have questions, please send them through um, on the comments and then we'll discuss them as we go through. But yes, I, I just wanted to give a little introduction about yourself and Artnome and if you'd like to give us a bit of a, um, a background story because something I wanted to share with everyone and to say to you is that, you know, it is thanks to you that a lot of us are here today talking about digital art and all the platforms that you've been sort of promoting, supporting and influencing uh, through the past years. Um, you know, I do remember uh, seeing you um, at the Christie's Art and Tech Summit back in London. That was already two years ago, I suppose. And yeah. that for me was a, you know, was such a... Uh, you know, such a great moment to see, very inspiring that in the art world, um, something was changing. And having you there on stage, sort of connecting on a more ground level, 
and making examples that could be understood by the general public, it definitely made a lot of sense. And I think it wasn't just, you know, me, but I, I also know that Akatao as well found the same sort of um, initial point at learning more about blockchain. Um, so I just wanted to, to learn from you, if you'd like to share with the audience, um, you know, the background, the story, how you arrived to create Artnome and how you sort of became one of the face of the, the revolution in art and technology. Yeah, so that's a, a super kind um, introduction. Uh, thank, thank you for that. Um, I will say just about anything that I know, well, everything I know uh, by definition are, are things that I've learned from other people, right? So it's really a testament to this community. I don't, I, I think I'm more of a mouthpiece. I go around and talk to a lot of folks and try to understand things because, because I'm slow to understand them sometimes. And I really have to pour over them a bunch of times to really understand, you know, uh, what they're about. And then I feel obliged um, to sort of pass on what I learn uh, because other folks have been so, so kind to me. So uh, anything that I've shared, you know, probably is, are, are things that I've learned from other folks. But the, the background um, on Art Gnome um, actually goes back to my, my midlife crisis, well, maybe arguably even further uh, back than that. But my two great passions in life have pretty consistently been uh, basketball and art. And when I turned uh, 37 or 38, maybe four or five years ago, um, not unlike today, I was an overweight uh, guy with an office job who didn't get um, enough exercise. And I had spent, you know, my, my undergraduate degree was in studio art. Um, I went and got a graduate degree in sort of digital art um, and spent 20 years or so just trying to figure out if I can survive. So anyone who's, who studied art or wanted to be an artist growing up knows that you consistently hear over and over and over and over again. I mean, my parents are big into the arts, but I heard, you know, over and over again, if you become an artist, you won't be able to make a living. You need to have some alternative. You need to find something else to do. And that, I think that really sunk in. So for, for that, from that time, the two decades from when I graduated from undergraduate until I was like 37, 38 or so, I think the question in my head was always, can I survive? Can I get enough money to buy a house and, you know, to support my family and things like that? And then once I kind of answered that question, I was like, oh, you know, I mean, obviously bad things can happen, but I'm like, I'm pretty secure in my ability to, to make a living. Shit, now what, right? What's my life about, you know, now that I've sort of stopped running and just worrying about whether or not I can make a living. Um, and so that was around that time. And I thought, maybe I'll, maybe I'll get in good shape and I'll be able to dunk a basketball and that will be my goal. You know, before I turn 40, I'll, I'll be able to dunk. So I started going to the gym every single morning, like absurdly early, like two or three hours early for like six months. And I dropped a bunch of weight and I was like competing against some of these younger kids in basketball, but doing all of these stupid exercises that I had no business doing, like jumping around the gym, like a moron. Um, uh, it was very much midlife crisis. Right. And I got pretty close. I had my hand wrapped around the rim. And I think with a few more months, I would have got there. But I had a, a massive sports hernia. Um, and, you know, the doctor said, you can't do anything uh, for like a year. And uh, you're a moron. So next time, take it slower and, and, you know, stop trying to dunk, you know. So that took, took away my whole motivation for my midlife crisis, uh, one of my passions on basketball. And I had this long commute into the city, into uh, Cambridge, and I was listening to this book on uh, tape, this audio book, I guess it's not really a book on tape anymore, called, um, uh, what's well, Provenance. And um, in Provenance, 
they talk, it's about um, an art forger who not only forges paintings, but also forges the documentation. And uh, the, the stats that they cited were something like, you know, 15 to 20% of artworks in museums um, and, and at auction are either forged or misattributed. And I had never heard anything like that. I mean, I guess I knew people forged artworks, but I never really thought about that before. And for me, you know, I didn't go into it too much, but literally art was my identity growing up. Um, I grew up Mormon, um, just outside of Boston. And Mormons, if you know anything about them, I don't have anything against them. Most of my extended family are still Mormon, but there's a lot of things you can't do. Some people sometimes define Mormons by like what you can't do. There's this great shirt that just says, I can't, I'm Mormon on it or whatever. So I couldn't watch a lot of the movies that my other friends watched. And I wasn't in on the in jokes and you can't date until you're like a hundred and you can't dance and you can't like, there's all these things you can't do. Right. So I'm already kind of an outsider um, outside of my house. And then in my house, everyone in my family is an engineer uh, and I'm like horrible at math, um, you know, in school and tech. And so I don't really fit in anywhere. So from an early age, art was sort of where I went to, you know, where I was like, mm -hmm. oh, okay. Art's a spot, unlike math, where if you come up with a different answer, you're rewarded for it instead of being condemned for it, right? That's having unique answers now means that you're creative and you have creativity and that's valuable rather than just not being able to come up with the same answer that everyone else comes up with, right? So with that as my background, um, I, I heard about these forgeries and I'd been studying art history since I was like six or seven because that was where my passion was. And it felt to me like somebody uh, was like rewriting my Bible by, by creating all these forgeries and I wanted to do something about it. And uh, I decided that I, I would try to build, a, well, so first I reached out to Harvard and Columbia and Princeton and the Getty and the, you know, all these institutes and said, where's the database that has all the complete works by the, the best known artists? Because if you had this database, there, then forgery really probably couldn't even exist. You would just cross-reference the database and I worked in data um, and I was just surprised that, you know, it wasn't readily available. So they all wrote back and said, no such database exists. It's a huge problem for art history and for the art market. Um, and there's a lot of different reasons. You know, there are these catalog resume printed books that can cost so the Picasso one, I think was $200,000 up to a few years ago, where now it's a mere $20,000, right? Yeah, uh, correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's Insane, right so in this world where every other um every other space um has been changed by data and you know uh, analytics the art world is sort of in the dark ages and paying a, a steep price for it because they didn't have the the required data to kind of vet out uh, forgeries and things like that so looking for my next midlife crisis project i, I decided to, that I, I would build the database um and just broke the problem down i went to my engineer brother and said hey can you build me um, a device that'll allow me to scan these books really quickly. So they sell, you know, scanners, um, but they're thousands and thousands of dollars. So he built this thing out of PVC pipes with cameras that, you know, had a remote trigger. And I thought, well, let me just see what it's like to scan one book. And then I went from one mm -hmm. book to, um, you know, a whole set of books for an artist to multiple artists and spent, you know, a lot of money and a, uh, pretty much all my free time for two or three years building up this database. And then it dawned on me um, that no one knew about it and I wasn't doing, going anywhere. I was just spending all my time and money and there was no clear objective other than I was trying, I knew at some point this data would be useful, but like if I got hit by a bus, no one would know about it, right? 
so that was it's a long story but that's what led to art gnome so that's why i started art gnome um i had done blogs blogs before i did a blog on basketball analytics with my brother that grew from like zero to like a quarter million unique views in like a month or two it was around again basketball and analytics so i was like well maybe art and analytics can can work too so i put out some early the earliest art gnome blog posts are about like what might it look like if you wanted to build new metrics around analytics for data and like starting with really basic stuff like if you have data on the complete works of these artists you can say things like what's the average size of a Cezanne painting or you know what's the tallest Picasso and that maybe doesn't sound that exciting but I think you can build from there so I lucked out early on and um, 538 which is a the the really well-known data journalism site in in um, United States came to my house and did an interview and talked about my story. And that really helped me get my traffic off the ground. Um, for, mm -hmm. And then quickly, just to get to how, why Art Gnome isn't just about analytics and data today, um, my master's degree and my passion was largely around generative art. Um, so in the 90s, when I was a, a painting student and a sculpture student, I thought digital art was horrible um, and atrocious. And like had no interest. In I remember you saying that, and I was like, "What are you saying, Jason?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I hadn't been exposed to to very uh, interesting work, and I was just like, you know, as a, someone who was a painter, I was like, you know, this stuff is garbage. It doesn't move me whatsoever. Um, and then only by force, you know, when I went to get a job, that I learned first taught myself Photoshop, and then Illustrator, then some programming, then some video editing, then some three D modeling stuff. And uh, I eventually grew to, to love it. And my, you know, my master's thesis was a lot of it was focused on generative art. Um, so, but, but back then, 2007 to 2010, I mean, it's still kind of a nerdy pursuit, but back, back then it was very nerdy. There was just like, you know, a small number of people that were really excited about generative art. Um, mm. And when I started getting invited to these um, conferences because I had this data, um, on on the artworks, so people like Christie's and Sotheby's and you know other folks that took interest because I had the data. Um, I was surprised when I would go and have dinner with these folks and talk to them. You know, you know, are people collecting digital art, or what are your thoughts on digital art? And everybody was like, Oh no, that stuff's garbage, and no one's doing anything important in that space. So that's why I felt compelled um, to to use the platform that I had in Art Gnome to also go back and talk about um, the the why I think that digital art's not just, you know, worth paying attention to, but it's the most important art of our generation, um, in my opinion. You know, quickly, I believe that because I think, you know, 20, 30, 50, 60 years from now, when we look back, well, now we've got COVID to compete with. But prior to COVID, um, the two things that maybe people would think about is this digital revolution that we're living through and how it's changing everything. And it may be climate change. Um, so, Typically, I think artists who use the tools of their time and reflect the biggest, you know, changes of their time are, are often the ones that are remembered. So, yeah, I think we just we need to do a better job of appreciating the digital artists in their lifetime rather than doing what yeah. um, historically has happened and waiting for them to die before we celebrate artists. Right. So, yeah, yeah I know. Totally. A, I'll, I'll pause there um, uh, so I, I don't just keep talking forever. That's totally fine, Jason. Um, that was actually really, really interesting. And uh, I knew a few bits of your story on how you got to create Art Gnome, but there were a lot of things that I didn't know. So it was wonderful to hear how you actually made that journey, you know, 
what the reasons were and uh, and the objectives that you wanted to achieve and the fact that when you went to look for for an archive of works you know in in art that didn't exist and it's still a problem you know in some ways um even though blockchain and other technologies are supporting but that is still um a problem so there's a there's actually a few questions that came through um so i'm just going to read them out loud um so Georg uh, Georg Beck is asking if you can tell us a bit more about yourself as an artist um yes <laughs> if you would sure. like to do that sure yeah thanks Georg i appreciate the uh, the question so Georg's a good friend of mine uh, people ask you know how did you get into uh, being a curator or how did you start curating? And it's, uh, it was largely Georg who had reached out to me um, and Kate who then su supported it um, as well. Um, so it's just one of those things where when you start, um, you, you curate one show, people now magically think of you as a curator. So I, I owe Georg a lot for that. On my uh, personal work as an artist, um, I started the, the same way a lot of folks do. In the early days, I did a lot of portraits and landscapes and I moved between materials a lot. And I mean, I think my first uh, solo art show, and that makes it sound fancier than it is, it was in a basement in my town hall. I was like 16, I think. But I had, you know, 30, 40 paintings um, that I could, I could put up because I've always been a bit of an introvert who prefers writing and painting and sort of those kind of activities. So I spent a lot of my time doing uh, that kind of work. And I think, like, again, like a lot of artists, I worked through history and tried to start with traditional representational, you know, kind of work and then discovered artists that were probably more mainstream like Escher and Dali, you know, and tried to, oh, surrealism looks cool and like tried to follow the path of the other artists in history. And then by the time I got to undergraduate and got a little bit more serious about it and tried to think, you know, well, what is my work about? Um, a few things I learned that I still believe and they held true in graduate school too. You can't really think your way to an approach, I don't think, um, in art, or at least it won't seem sincere to your audience. I think you have to make your way. Um, you just have to make lots and lots and lots of work, and the work will evolve uh, through the effort. So, so my work sort of evolved to a spot um, where it was in between, I haven't talked about my early work in a while, but sort of in between things that are attractive and repulsive. So, you know, um, you know, I'm going to butcher this, but there are some things that foods that could almost look like intestines or like, what is it in our body that's like pre-trained that allows us to like find something attractive versus repulsive? And how can you get to that middle ground between them was part of it. And then also this sort of um, the other axes would be like synthetic, artificial, plastic kind of things versus natural and just playing with those scales and sculpture and printmaking and painting. Um, I think part of that, you know, my dad uh, worked in, in biotech and worked on artificial human heart. And I was always sort of interested in the medical aesthetic and a tech aesthetic, even before, when I thought um, digital art was junk, I was still interested in um, the tech aesthetic um, as an analog artist. So uh, I was making, you know, paintings and sculptures, thinking that I wanted to be maybe a, um, an art teacher, because that's what they told me. That's, that's all you can do when you grow up is be an art teacher. Um, and tried that, didn't like it. And then when I went to graduate school, I did a lot of data visualization. I was doing stuff in Maya um, that was basically generative art programming in Mel in like 2004, 2005. Again, I'm like, not quite an OG in the way that some of these other guys are like Casey Reese um, or Mario Klingeman, but I was like 
semi-OG in that I was using dorky, you know, Maya scripts to, to make generative art in like 2002, 2003. And there wasn't really an audience for it um, that I knew mm -hmm. of that it was what I was interested in. Uh, more recently, I've been having fun just in the last year when I have time um, doing some stuff with, um, you know, mach different machine learning tools to try to figure out as someone who's not um, I, I don't claim to, to understand them on a highly technical level, but tools like Runway um, have allowed me to play around a little bit. And I, I have a theory that um, folks that just have really strong, stronger than me, artistic practice, once these tools become available to them, could start to do some pretty interesting stuff. Um, so yeah, I, I think people maybe know a few of the things that I put out in the last year or so. And it's uh, it's more for fun and because I enjoy it. I don't take try not to take myself too serious as an artist. I decided the world doesn't need another um, mediocre artist, so I gave them a mediocre writer instead. Oh, I love that, Jason. Thank you for being so honest about your work and um, what you do. I I really, you know, like connecting with you on this level, and I and I am sure people listening, you know, as well, really. Um, relate to what you're talking about so yeah I saw the work that you've put online um, it wasn't too long ago it was a, a basket and Simpson am I wrong yeah no that's that's right yeah actually I'll talk about that real quickly too the the interesting thing I don't have anything to show because sometimes I will put it on the screen but I don't I don't have it here I don't know if you've got it anywhere on your screen that you can show it or if you uh, just um, talk about it I don't know yeah, I'll just talk about it. I don't trust myself to hit any buttons on the screen and not lose you. Um, so, okay. uh, you know, I had spent two years talking about um, some of the early pioneers in the sort of machine learning art space. And when you don't do it, you know, and you're just right about it, you're doing some of that writing on faith, right? I mean, I, I couldn't actually create the work myself. So I was telling everybody, you know, that these machines don't do the work on its own. These artists are brilliant and you're undervaluing them. And this message out there that the machines are going to replace artists and, and do the work on their own is stupid and counterproductive. But then Runway came out and I was like, oh, now I can try to make something. And I'm like, oh, my God, what if it really does just do it all by itself and it makes really interesting work? You know, I'll have spent two years for no. So luckily, it turns out that it's like really, really, really hard to do. I mean, it's not hard to make crap. Um, as with any medium, you can make crap freely and frequently. But to make anything that's even like remotely interesting, um, not only took me like, you know, uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of hours, uh, but you spend a ton of money on the rendering too, right, through AWS. So, uh, and, and then again, like painting and any, this is another misconception. People often think digital art is like wholly different from analog art in terms of process and that there can't be mistakes or whatever in the process. It's all, both are very, if you ask any digital artist who's been analog or any analog artist who comes from digital, you know, there's a lot of similarity. So the, the mistake I stumbled upon that I was able to cultivate was uh, everything kept turning into sort of um, the machine learning mush that you'll see a lot. Um, so usually you, you see one of two things. People use Art Breeder and you see like a freaky face or you see something that looks kind of like a pile of mush and that's when the, the model kind of collapses or whatever, right? Um, and the, the great artists are the ones that are able to get something more than that or something better that you haven't seen before. And I'm not gonna say my stuff was great, but one of my Eureka moments was the Simpsons model, which I didn't train, it's a preset model. I crossbred that with the, the Basquiat model. And because there's so much consistency in the, the Simpsons in terms of facial features, like eyes, mm -hmm. or things like that, 
um, it was able to, to retain some of the Basquiat portraiture um, and, and make it feel more like a portrait. So they don't look exactly like a Basquiat portrait, nor do they look exactly like the Simpsons. And there was a bunch of tuning and selection that I had to do to get them to where I was happy. Um, but I'm happy with them, which, you know, as I think any artist who spends a lot of time making art um, and studying art, as long as I have, uh, if they are honest with themselves, making something that you're happy with is like really hard. Like most of the stuff I make is garbage. So I thought those were kind of cool enough to put them out there. Yeah, yeah, totally. That was a great achievement. I, I liked it, you know, in a weird way, because I couldn't really see either Simpson or Basket, but both at the same time. So it was, uh, it was interesting. Yes. <laughs> Very surprising, yeah. Um, there's a question coming from um, David at Known Origin, and he's asking, um, have we lost the initial momentum with Sotheby's? This felt like we had the attention of the art world. Yeah, have we lost the initial momentum with what? With Sotheby's, or Christie's, I suppose, yes. Oh, oh the momentum with Sotheby's in terms of uh, digital art. Yes, I suppose that is the question relating to when we were talking about the journey of Artnum. So, you know, yeah. there, was a, there was a good wave of, um, and a lot of attention around digital arts and the crypto art market as well. And a lot of platforms came about. And then David goes on saying that through Artnum um, and the first article that you released, um, um, that made sense of the old new world. And that's how we discovered data, for example. Yeah, no, thanks. David's awesome. Uh, and thanks for the question, David. Uh, and obviously, I love Dada, too. So yeah, I think the the, the digital foothold uh, with Christie's and Sotheby's, it's, I think it's very tempting to be like, oh, I hate rich people. And I hate the old uh, world, art world, and this, that, and the other. I'm not a black and white thinker, um, but, but I am honest. And I think that the interest um, in the beginning for first blockchain and then machine learning driven art and generative art was uh, a bit superficial. Uh, it was just, there's a, a need for to have something new. They have to feed the machine, right? I mean, I don't mean that in a condescending way. That's actually probably true of all art lovers. I need new art, you know, on a regular basis and new ideas and new things. So I think, you know, um, Christie sort of mis famously mishandled uh, the introduction of the, the machine learning art, you know, in my opinion, by bringing in mm -hmm. the, the three artists who kind of heavily borrowed from the other, from Robbie Art uh, Barrett without much credit or whatever. And I don't blame them. I actually applaud Christie's for trying to do something new that's in a direction of um, digital art. But there's no one, and again, this isn't an insult. I think it's just sort of like a fact. I mean, there's nothing in anyone's art history um, training or background usually that makes them in a good position to be able to judge uh, more technical digital art. So my guess is that, you know, uh, there, there wasn't, you know, my understanding is that the guy that chose them and kind of worked with them didn't necessarily have a deep understanding of the, the medium, right, or, or the media, um, which is sort of a requirement if you're at Sotheby's or Christie's and you're going to be, you know, they're seen as an expert. So I think they just need to work more on hiring folks that have the expertise um, to bring it in. And so while I think that first pass maybe was sort of superficial, the like, every single art uh, festival had like three blockchain panels and then the next year there were none. And then every single panel had uh, machine learning and then the next year there were none. And that's, I think, sort of a, a, a cyclic thing. Now, to not be a pessimist, I think there, there are signs that there's more to it. Their interest, I think, was a cursory surface level interest in a technology. And I myself get bored of the technology. It's really the art has to stand on its own um, for there to be prolonged interest. 
And I thought it was a great sign when Art in America did a full issue that actually went into um, generative art. So generative art to me has more staying power than um, art tied to say a specific technology, right? Like blockchain or, or machine learning. I think we need a broader topic um, and just look at digital art as a whole and specifically art that take adva takes advantage of computers and what they can do um, in terms of programming and stuff like that. So I still have high hopes. I think it was Art in America or one of them listed um, Vera Molnar in their like 10 artists to watch just a few months ago for, for the year. You know, um, I think there are a lot of signs it's going that way. And I think I'll, I'll save the rest of the answer for, I think there's another question from that you shared with me earlier that you might want to ask. But I, I do think that um, the, the split between sort of um, millennials and boomers will come into play here too, where uh, the younger generation, Gen Z, millennials, you know, even some Gen Xers like me, um, are going to be much more apt to appreciate and uh, the, the digital art and the way that it can be consumed um, as opposed to maybe um, older folks. Now that could sound ageist. I know some really hip um, boomers who know way more about tech and art than I do, but as a general trend, I think the data points that way. Yes, absolutely. There was a, um, there's questions and comments as well that I wanted to share with you. Um, Georg is saying that the momentum is yet to come with the mega uh, galleries um, entering. So he's suggesting that we're still waiting for big galleries to enter the space, um, perhaps. And then David goes on saying the need for the, for the new is so true. This is the same for all industries, not just art. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> and the question, I've just put it up on the screen. Um, and Robbie also is, is listening to the chat, so he's <laughs> watching. So if you guys have questions, please feel free to share them. Um, hey, <laughs> where do you see AI art going as an emerging uh, form for, of artistic expression? So where do you see AI art going as an emerging form of artistic expression? Yeah, I think AI and machine learning are gonna continue to evolve. Um, but I, I think my definition is, we'll see publicly, you know, the news stories that capture people's um, imagination around AI that don't get into too much technical detail. I think those may start to fade if they haven't already. Um, we've already seen two or three AI winters. Um, so there's this hype cycle in history where people get really excited about AI um, and, and kind of overstate its potential and put out a lot of news uh, around it. I'm going to butcher this, but I want to say the first was like the 50s, and then there's one in the late 70s, and then one in the early 90s, late 80s. Um, and I think we're probably going to slope down fr from that a little bit. I mean, the, the rate at which we're seeing innovation, maybe maybe we won't see the, the next AI winter, but at least certainly on the business side where I pay attention, I think we've sort of overpromised on what it can do. So uh, where I think it'll go, and I think it's a healthy direction, is rather than try to isolate out AI and call it AI art, or which none of the AI artists like it to be called anyway, it maybe will just be more comfortable with calling it generative art or, you know, um, com you know, programmatic art or, you know, some sort of name that doesn't focus so specifically on the tool um, and focuses more on a genre or the, or the artwork. Does that answer? I don't know if that fully answers the question. And then for for Georg's point of, about it not really having made its way into um, like the Gagosians and the Zorners and like the, the major galleries, I think they'll move a bit slower um, 
so uh, I think they're in the stage of like the Kindle or like the iPod. Um, and what I mean by that is uh, when we see uh, digital transformation, usually it goes from analog. Um, so the Kindle example, you know, we had paper books and we didn't go straight from paper books to like uh, necessarily to like audio books or something like that, right? Even though audio books have been around a long time, there was this middle stage where we had a Kindle and it had to kind of look, we wanted to have something in our hands because that's how we think of books. But now we've kind of moved away from that and realized all we need is the information and audio might be the fastest way to transmit it, right? Um, and I think similarly, we felt like we needed tangible physical media for music, CDs and you know records and cassettes. And when we had the, the dedicated device of the iPod, I think there was something comforting that we had this physical thing where our music lived. And now mm -hmm. our music lives in you know the cloud and the ether and we're more comfortable with that. So what am I talking about in relation to Gagosian and these other galleries? There, there are, there's a questions I get a lot now where, well, with COVID, are, are all these galleries now going to tap into digital? And are we going to see? Yeah, that, that was other? actually one of the topics I wanted to touch on um, later. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want me to hold off then on answering? Or um, I... Yeah, as you wish. There's a few comments I just wanted to share with you because they relate to what you were talking about. Um, so uh, Kevin Bosch is saying winter's coming. And um, David Young, um, art is too narrow as a category, um, tied to the popular obsession with the tech, as Jason says, uh, use generative art. So that'll be interesting to hear from other artists in this live chat, if they would be happy with the, you know, generative art um, or programmatic art, um, you know, sort of um, definition. Um, and then um, AI is a tool for the digital artist to use. And Gerald goes on saying, generative art, in my opinion, is the real postmodernism retrospectively. So yes, just sharing that with you. Yeah, all, all well said and um, all artists and, and thinkers who I, um, who I admire and respect. So not surprised that I, I largely agree with them. But yeah, I guess where I was going, um, and I'll, I'll wrap it up on, on the answer, is that the, um, the Gagosians and the Zwerners I think what they're doing is replicating what we saw in the physical world in the digital world, right? So they're making VR white yes. cube, um, which to me- um, Or viewing a, rooms or, yeah. Yeah, viewing rooms, you know, which to me, and I, I have to admit, I haven't spent a lot of time in them. I can't really afford to shop at that level. Um, but but um, to me, it's as a nerd, um, I totally get why they're important, but as a nerd who spent a lot of time in digital art and, and tech, it, it's, too slow and kind of boring to replicate what you have in the physical world when you've got all these cool new digital tools and opportunities. But it's, it's common um, that the first thing that you do is build a bridge from the analog and what people are used to into the digital, right? So it's wholly natural that they're doing what they're doing, especially for their older um, audience, you know, uh, with, you know, with money. Um, those folks, you can't just bring them completely from A to Z. They need some sort of a transitionary period into the digital. So they're dipping their toe in by replicating the analog with digital, but it'd be cool to think about um, if you weren't tethered to trying to just repeat what we've had for hundreds of years and you just use these yeah. tools to experience, what does that look like, right? Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you, Jason, on that. Um, I think we've seen far too many examples of uh, recreating a 2D world into a virtual world and how do we interact with that? And I think it's also about how do we experience those spaces, you know, in the IRL, URL, and how it makes us feel, you know, not just about the interaction we have with one another in the physical space, but also about 
um, how do we feel about virtual reality as opposed to AR or, um, you know, XR. Um, so I think there's a lot of room for experimenting. Um, so it is interesting to see how different galleries and museums are approaching now the internet uh, because there's no other way. So it's kind of like the only way um, as we know it now during COVID to stay connected and keep sharing content, cultural content and art. Um, so yes, um, there's a few more questions, comments uh, that I'll share with you. Um, so Gerg says, uh, which is going to be the marketplace for generative art in the next future? Got it. So the marketplace for generative art in the future. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get on my high horse and talk about one pet peeve, and then I'll switch to answer that question. So going back to the uh, sort of the virtual reality and the galleries thing, the, the one thing that really kind of drives me bonkers uh, and just seems sort of absurd, I guess if you did it to be absurd, it would be fine. But digital art is created on screens to begin with. So the idea that you take digital art and then try to replicate a physical world where there's a painting and a frame and a mat or whatever and a place to walk around. Um, I mean, it's the, it was created in a digital environment to begin with. So I think putting it in a digital environment is just fine. There's no need to drag it into an imaginary physical world and then drag it back. And again, th I, I don't mean to be mean about it. I know people really enjoy that. And there's a lot of people that do that as a way to physically interact. And when I say I don't like something, it doesn't mean it's wrong or you shouldn't do it. It just means it doesn't make sense to me, right? Um, so I, I think part of paying respect to digital art is keeping it, um, respecting the fact that it was made digitally in the first place. No need to put it in mm -hmm. a simulated um, world um, to, to appreciate it. But to answer the question about where generative art um, is going, um, I think uh, generative art to, to me um, will, will do really well for a few reasons. Um, let me see, how do I do this without getting super political? So I'm, I'm you know, Don't worry, I think we're fine. Yeah, so, you know, I, I'm very um, liberal, uh, but I'm also aware that uh, a lot of subject matter that we traditionally have in the art world is becoming more and more taboo. And I, again, I'm not going to lament that or praise that. I'm just going to notice that, right? Mm -hmm. So some massive percentage of art was just naked women for a while, right? Um, and, you know, for, for a couple of centuries or whatever. And those things are starting to become uh, taboo for, for good reasons. And as that stuff happens, a lot of the stuff that we were okay with in the past that becomes more cringeworthy, one way to, to move towards, I think art always should push boundaries and make people uncomfortable and ask questions. But one thing that could happen in the market is that we could move towards art. Um, and this is the, the last definition I would want to give generative art because it deserves so many positive things, but it could be seen as safe, right? So when it comes time to hang, um, you know, uh, a giant um, or go gan of like naked, you know, women or whatever on, on the wall um, or an abstract, um, you know, generative artwork, um, you know, you may be safer moving towards things that are, are abstract, right? So that's one thing it has going for it that, um, there's so many things I could talk about why generative art's great, but I do think culturally and politically, you know, even let's go outside of generative art. I think, you know, um, Yoyo Kasuma, um, you know, the polka dots, she, she mm -hmm. did some radical work, you know, where she was, you know, they were all nude and video and stuff like that, but you don't see that so much. And I think it's because um, the mainstream, the polka dots are friendly and easy to understand and people could kind of appreciate it on multiple levels, right? Mm -hmm. And I think there's a, a drive or a desire to, to put some artists in the mainstream that are a little bit less um, 
uh, un, you know, making people uncomfortable a little bit easier to consume. Um, so to, to answer the more fully the generative art question, it has that going for it. I think it's tied to the biggest change that's going on in our generation with all the computing stuff that's going on. All the people that um, have grown up in the, the last 20, 30 years, the younger generations grew up um, very tech savvy and understanding um, computing uh, a bit better. I think there's probably, I don't know the stats on this, but there's an increased number of folks that um, probably have some level of coding uh, knowledge or, or, or understanding, and that may go up over time. And to appreciate, you can appreciate generative art without um, being someone who knows how to code, but man, it makes a big difference if you know how to code. So the same way, you know, I spent uh, decades learning how to paint and, you know, you don't have to have spent decades learning how to paint to appreciate a painting, but I look at a painting different than people that don't know how to paint. I look at it and I'm like, ah, this is how they handled, you know, an eye or a nose or whatever. And I've tried to paint a couple dozen eyes and noses and you, you appreciate it on a slightly different level. And I think that's also the same for, for generative art. Um, so I think the future mm -hmm. is right uh, for generative art because the amount of people that can understand it and appreciate it is, uh, is increasing. Good point. Yes, absolutely. There's uh, something very relevant that Ilan shared. Um, and he says, I would like to suggest that there is a generational thing going on. Every new generation has a new wave of galleries that meet the interest of its own generation, which is kind of what you described, I suppose. Yeah. And then... yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. I... Go ahead. Oh, I don't, I, I forgot what I was going to say and it probably wasn't important. So, yeah, <laughs> Okay, and then Robbie says, um, super well said about VR galleries from both of you. Um, and then we have um, another question. Where's a good place to start learning generative art? And then there's Mary asking a question um, that she uh, put through this morning, asking any thoughts on the opening of art tech sections in the blue chip galleries? Um, and as an example, Hauser Art Lab. So yeah, these two questions about um, um, where's a good place for start learning about generative art and any thoughts about the art and tech section in blue chip galleries? Okay, yeah, so the, the uh, I might need you to remind, remind me the second question. Yeah, that, of course. Right? <laughs> but um, a great spot to learn uh, about generative art. So I think uh, again, in keeping with my philosophy that knowing even just a little bit about coding um, really uh, dramatically expands your ability to appreciate um, generative art. So I would say processing, uh, I think it's processing.org. So processing is a, a, a programming language that was designed for um, artists and visual learners that uh, has, it's loaded with examples and they allow you to kind of look under the hood and try out examples. Um, and seeing that you don't have to go and, you know, you could even just spend a few hours. You don't have to spend days or weeks, although it's fun, uh, building your own work. That's going to help you understand um, how it's made and, and also help you understand your world because our worlds are becoming increasingly uh, governed by programming. So you don't have to uh, become a programmer to learn programming. Just learning a little bit can, can help everyone these days. So uh, that's sort of a hands-on start. And then um, Anne and Michael Spalter, who are, uh, live in Rhode Island, um, you know, one state over for me, have, I, I believe, to be either the most impressive collection, hands down in general, or certainly the most impressive uh, private collection. I know um, the Victorian Albert Museum, VNA, has a, yeah. a really important collection as well. But 
I think they've even borrowed works from from Anne and Michael, who've been really, really um, uh, big champions of the space for a long time and have an amazing collection. It's all online. Um, I don't know offhand what the URL is, but I think if you look up, it might be like Spalter Collection. Um, they, you know, I would send folks there. I think it's the best online resource. There's maybe one other website um, that I, I don't remember offhand the name of it. Uh, but their collection's phenomenal, and they've got some great write-ups. Um, you know, it's it's the place to go. She's Anne's actually a, a, a digital and generative artist, and wrote some of the early important textbooks. So yeah, it's a great spot to go. And okay. second question was second question is about any thoughts on the opening of art and text sections in blue chip galleries. As an example, how's their outlap? So I think there's going to be a down up. Uh, sorry, yeah, down up. Uh, bottom down, down up uh, thing going on where there are galleries that have been selling paintings and sculptures and things like that for a while that are going to try to adapt um, to this digital space, especially with COVID. We might see some acceleration in that, you know, mm -hmm. they know um, that this is the direction things are going. And if you're a gallery, especially a blue chip gallery, you're a tastemaker and your value and the way you make your money and your position in society is to be seen as a tastemaker. So there's going to be some pressure for them to hurry up and um, do something that's not just a surfacey like, oh, look, you know, now it's digital. Right. So um, that doesn't mean I have faith that that's not what they'll do. They may actually just be like, oh, look, here's some digital stuff. Right. Um, and it might be a little clumsy at first, but transitions can be clumsy. And I think. Uh, to the degree that they can bring in folks that have a background um, in the space instead of misstepping kind of like Christie's might have done on that first um, AI artwork or whatever, maybe learn the lesson and bring in some folks that actually really know the space and acknowledge that there's a continuity between analog art all the way up to the most recent digital art. It's not this weird spaceship that came down yesterday and dropped digital art on the planet. You know, uh, if you look at early generative art, it's really a, a natural transition from the work that was being done on canvas and getting someone that knows those uh, nuances and can help them make that transition would be good. That's the top down. The bottom up, um, which maybe is more exciting and, and potentially more likely, are that places like Super Rare um, and Dada and Known Origin and a whole mess of places like um, that actually are, I, I wouldn't even say get this so much because it's not about their understanding of the past so much as their ability to build a new future. I think they're just building stuff that isn't tethered to the old world um, so much, right? Um, and uh, it started small, but we've seen a lot of growth and it appeals to a younger and, and wider audience, I think. Um, you know, there's a lot about the old art world and I have a lot of friends there and they're nicer than people give them credit for, but there's a lot of, about the old art world that it would be good if it died off. You know, the exclusionism and, you know, um, it's sort of this idea that, um, you know, by making something harder to access, it makes it more valuable. And I think there's people doing interesting work in this bottom up approach where uh, people can access the work, uh, a wide variety of people can access the work and people can still feel a sense of sponsorship or ownership for the artists. That's exciting uh, to me. So I'm kind of rooting for the bottom up uh, approach. Fantastic. Thank you for this vision. I, yeah, really appreciate that insight from you. Um, Eleonora is asking a question about uh, curating digital art. If you want to give any advice on uh, digital art curators for digital art curators, which I'm also very interested in. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, digital art curation, I think you, you have to, uh, you have to love the work. Sometimes it's tempting to um, 
there's a lot of pressure and I get it because I try, I was, a, I'm a failed artist first and foremost. Um, and I tried reaching out to people and to get into shows and things like that. So when you're a curator, there's a nonstop line of people that, that want to show you their work and, you know, kind of want you to, to do them a solid and put the work in the show and this, that, and the other. But at the end of the day, all you are is your, your sincere and genuine assessment of work, right? So if you don't push back politely um, and make sure that you're only ever showing work that you really deeply believe in, um, mm -hmm. and then you have to cultivate your sense of why it is you uh, deeply believe in that, right? So it's one thing to select, but we're also as curators sort of missionaries, right? And it's our job um, to speak, um, I would never say on behalf of the artist, the work always speaks for itself and the artists are often more eloquent about talking about their work than, um, than the curator is, but I think we should help offer some guidance or a gateway as to why we find this work um, interesting and help string together artists um, in, in a way that maybe makes the work more powerful by bringing it together than it would be if it was just individually uh, put there. But the, the big thing is, um, you know, to, to make sure you're not choosing work that you don't believe in, try to, try to make sure you have a vision. So what's the vision? If you don't have a true north or a vision, then, you know, what do you do? And you're just kind of selecting random work, right? So, you know, get your vision together. Um, and then the other thing that people don't talk about so much, um, a lot of companies and, 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 you know, gallerists who aren't quite companies, um, you know, but have this same vision where if I build a, a website that sells art, all these artists, great artists are just going to want me to like sell their work, right? And they're kind of put off or surprised that like, artists have like super high standards for what they do, right? They care a ton about their work and where it's shown, how it's shown, what it's shown next to, what's the context, what's the essay, how long is it going to be up, you know, uh, who's going to visit it, right? So um, you really need to cultivate strong relationships uh, with artists and show them that you're not going to, I mean, we all screw up, but you're not going to screw, screw up too often and that you get and understand the vision, maybe try to understand how they made the work, read everything they've written, right? Um, and, um, and, and don't lose that confidence once you get it from them because uh, a gallerist who does a poor job representing artists um, or, or doesn't bother to understand uh, what their goals are um, pretty quickly tanks, right? So it's yeah. uh, my, if I have any success to, as a curator slash, and I'm not, maybe I should be saying curator and not gallerist, but if I have any success as a curator, it's uh, wholly due to the relationships with the artists that I have and very little to do with my own vision. Yeah, that's very true. What you said is so important to maintain a relationship and to build it, you know, because working through the internet it may get people lost, you know, so it is important to maintain that human connection. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the relationship with the, the artist matters a ton. Um, and then with the work, you know, it's, it's short, but this is the way everybody's different, you know, in how they assess. Mm -hmm. For me, I always assess uh, work with my, my eyes and then immediately after my heart. Um, and then if it wins, if it passes that test, then I'll use my brain. Um, but I can never think my way to liking artwork. It's never been that way. I've always been very confident, you know, I've always been very insecure on a lot of levels across a lot of things since I was very little, but I've always been very confident and my ability to, to choose work that I think is strong and why I think it's strong. And it, it always starts with my eyes and my heart um, and, and the things that I can't fully describe. And if it passes that test and it passes usually right away or it fails right away, then um, I'll put the effort in to try to understand if there was 
some deeper meaning or some context I can garner from the artist's history or something like that. But if you don't pass that test with me, um, that, which makes it sound like I'm cocky or important and I'm not, but just in terms of how I assess art, if I, if, you know, if I can't get past that, I can't understand uh, why I put effort, any other further effort into it, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yes, thanks for sharing that. Um, right, so we've got about five minutes before the live will end. So I've got a few questions and if you can give us some yes or no answer. I know it's brutal, but you know, sort of like <laughs> a quick short answer. Um, <clears throat> so one goes, um, do blockchain contracts seem to introduce a new monetary compensation that may side up, uh, sorry, that may sidestep the need for galleries? Uh, so far, we haven't seen that be the case because um, people have been able to do their own blockchain contracts relatively easy for a while, yet they migrate to platforms that do a job of bringing people together and promote their work. Okay. Akatao asks, uh, red digital art or crypto art? Hmm. So I liked crypto in the beginning and then it sounded kind of oldish and like recently old for a while. And now I like it back again. So we're, we're coming back into where... I like the fact that it's kind of, it's, it's almost like got some heft like graffiti art. Right, okay. Then David from Non-Origin is asking if you would like to be a guest curator of Non-Origin after the selection I've published this week. So if you'd like to be a guest curator for Non-Origin. Yeah, too much pressure to follow after Serena. But <laughs> oh maybe, gosh. Maybe, maybe if you get somebody really lousy, I'll, I'll go after them. Um, right. Um, your favorite living generative artist, Massimo is asking. Oh, favorite living. Yeah, Vera Molnar. She's amazing. Um, she, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Okay, good. And then there's a question from me coming, if, unless anyone else wants to add one. I know you've made a prediction for the art market in 2020. So I wanted to know, since, you know, COVID has happened and I think nobody was expecting it, how do you think this will be? shifting from your predictions into something that would be a post-pandemic reality in the art yeah. world? Yeah, my predictions, if people haven't noticed, uh, they're pretty much the same every year. I just changed the wording a little bit, but they're based on the premise that everybody, men, women, whatever color of your skin, whatever, I've spent half my life making art and I've never seen an impact based on gender or skin color. Like it's never impacted whether or not someone can make art better or worse. Yet the market's like ridiculously lopsided with art by women selling on average by like 40% less or something like that. And like tiny, tiny percentages of work by uh, artists of color and museums or whatever. So all my predictions are based on the ass assessment that people get smarter over time and that our culture will get smarter over time instead of uh, more dumb. And, you know, because I, I think if you're smart, you realize there is no reason for those works to sell at a discount now. One of the things that I think helps, helps people get smart is globalization and, and um, cultures, uh, you know, intermingling and learning from each other. And I think COVID could put a stamp on some of, you know, we're already seeing um, for reasons that I understand in some cases that borders are getting tighter and where travel is getting locked down. And um, I worry that um, we'll start to think of other people as the other instead of, you know, we're all one big family and all of that stuff. Right. So I, uh, that could hold us back. We might be able to overcome it digitally um, like we are today um, by, you know, staying in touch and sharing ideas digitally. That's my hope. And if we can do that digitally, then I, I would stay spot on with my predictions that um, we're going to see, um, you know, a more of an equaling out um, of the value of work from people, regardless of their gender or race. 
Um, if that doesn't happen and folks like Trump, um, you know, continue to kind of lead the way, um, then, yeah, we could go into a couple decades of dark ages where, um, you know, uh, the art world kind of just falls more back to sort of like the male machismo, boring, same old garbage that we've had to deal with, right? Hopefully not. I do hope not. <laughs> I hope yeah. that the post-COVID-19 will be a better place to live and with great art. <laughs> That's yeah, hope. I hope so too. I, I think you're doing a great thing by having these uh, these conversations and getting folks to talk regularly. I mean, we knew the old art world was kind of the carbon footprint on all those art um, shows and, and fairs or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's what? a huge problem that needs to be addressed, you know, outside of the COVID-19, you know, it's something that he has a huge impact. Yeah. So how do we use this new condition in order to interact more globally instead of less um, and use the digital tools to do that? I've got a, a post I'm working on and I know we'll run out of time here, but I've been looking at um, what, if any, uh, impact the Black Death had on the, the circumstances that allowed for the Renaissance, and then what, if anything, that happened with the Depression, um, the Great Depression, that allowed for the U.S. Federal Arts Administration project, which led to a lot of the abstract expressionists that kind of got their start there. And my high-level theory, and I have to work on this more, is that when everything's in order and everything's super stable and the system never changes, it's bad for art, right? And while I'd never, yeah. wish, a, I'd never wish a pandemic on the world, I think when we have uh, rapid shifts um, down and up and changes in who's in charge and ideology and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable, that opens a crack in the door for art. Now there needs to be some form of patronage um, in most cases it for it to thrive. So you had the Medici's and the, you know, the, the folks that were sort of classic patrons in the Renaissance and then the government stepping in with the federal arts project. So the question for me has always been, you know, where are the resources going to come to keep artists motivated to continue to make work and, and share it? Um, you know, I don't know um, necessarily, but some of the early blockchain markets, I think, are cool, uh, cool experiments that might move us in that direction. Great. Thanks, Jason. Yes, I, I agree with you. And I hope to live in a future that looks like what you just described. Um, Chloe saying very futurist of you, Jason. Yeah. Okay. I'll have to end our conversation here. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking to you, Jason. And thank you, everyone, for sharing your comments, thoughts, and uh, questions. Um, I'll see you again tomorrow. And thank you, Jason. And we'll look forward for your article. Let us yeah. know when that comes out. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, I definitely will. And thanks to everyone who joined. I see a lot of uh, familiar names and friendly faces. So uh, look forward to catching up with you all. Yeah, I don't know if you could see the comments, but there's a few questions I wasn't able to address. So if anyone wants, please do get in touch and we'll discuss them, um, you know, in chats. Yeah, artgnome.com works to, uh, sorry, artgnome, um, uh, at artgnome on Twitter. So if you have questions specifically for me, at artgnome on Twitter, um, and happy to answer anything. Well, we can have a part two live as well. <laughs> you I guys can it. vote on that. <laughs> next, next time we bring the alcohol, though. Yes, please. We can actually change the time, because I know David mentioned that, because I know you guys are just after lunchtime, um, and it's afternoon here, but we can definitely do a later one. Yeah, I'll, I'll drink in the morning. I'll take one for the team. <laughs> All right. Take care, everyone. Thank you for joining. Yeah, bye. bye, Jason. Thanks.